The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 14, verses 8 through 20. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to to Christ. Christ. Thanks, Leah. So good morning, everybody. Uh, I thought I'd start with a Thomas Merton quote. Uh, uh, Thomas Merton uh, said some very insightful things and some disturbing things along the way. This, This fits into both categories. Merton said this, people may spend their whole lives climbing the ladder of success only to find once they reach the top that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. So if anyone had learned this lesson firsthand, it would have been the man Saul of Tarsus. Uh, He writes in an autobiographical way in his letter to the Philippian church, that he was once such a successful young man that he was advancing far beyond his contemporaries, far beyond his peers, man of great influence. He had the equivalent of an Ivy League education. He had access to the inner ring of city gatekeepers, elite social circles, uh, he might, you know, have been, you know, called by some a celebrity rabbi. Uh, he had celebrity status from a very young age, and reflecting later on, act- after having become a Christian, uh, after having received the grace and mercy and kindness of Jesus Christ and forgiveness of his sin- for his sins and all those wonderful things, he refers to his previous life not because of the success itself, because success is a good thing, success is a fine thing, but the way that he thought of his own 
success as his fundamental identity. And he looked back on that way of looking at his success with the use of the word that's translated dung. Now, uh, I think that's some English translators being polite. Uh, because if you're to go back to the original Greek, and I've shared this before, uh, the true pure equivalent word would be a four-letter expletive uh, that is sometimes used perhaps by people in this room in moments of frustration or moments of intense comparison. Um, it starts with the letter S-H. Uh, that's the kind of language Paul used to talk about a life in which he depended on, leaned on his success, his accomplishments, his achievements, his celebrity status for his identity. It's what the playwright Tennessee Williams famously called the catastrophe of success. And so what's happening here is that Paul and Barnabas walk into a city called Lystra and the people there are trying to draw Paul back to that old way of his. They treat him as a god, and he says, stop it. Why does he say stop it? Uh, I'm going to propose three reasons or thoughts that might help us understand why Paul would say stop it to those who wanted to make him the center of their universe, even referring to him as a god. First, there's the confusion that, that exists about the nature of what really makes a person great. Confusion about greatness. Secondly, clarity about what greatness really is. Confusion and clarity. And then finally, the greatness behind all greatness. So, let's start with this, the confusion about the nature of true greatness. So, the, the people in Lystra… They witness God, not Paul, but God performing a miracle. He heals a man who's been immobilized since the day of his birth. He was born with a disability, hasn't walked. He's an adult. God heals the man through the ministry of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, and the, the man stands up and he starts walking in front of everyone. It's actually very believable if you believe God can create an entire universe just by speaking some words, God can certainly tell an immobilized man to get up and start walking, and it happens. But what the people in Lystra are doing in wanting to point to Barnabas and Saul as the miracle workers rather than to Jesus Christ as the one who worked the miracle through them, they're mistaking pointers for the point, appetizers for the feast, signs or signposts for the actual destination. So, raise your hand if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon in person. Ever been there? Ever seen? Okay, that's a lot of hands. Now, let's, let's say that a friend of yours said, I'm going to the Grand Canyon for the first time in my life, and then they go, and they come back, and you ask them, how was it? And they said, it was amazing. And then you say, do you have any pictures? And they pull out their phone. They said, I thought you wouldn't ask. I'm so glad you asked. I'd love to show you my pictures. And all they've got is this picture of a green sign that says Grand Canyon 517 miles away. They said, this is awesome. Look, here's a picture of the front of the sign, the back of the sign. Here's a picture of us in front of the sign. Here's a picture of me by myself making a silly face in front of the sign. 
Amazing, Grand Canyon, 517 miles away. We got, there was a Motel 6 right off the exit, uh, right off the interstate, right after this sign. It was incredible. And, and of course, you're, you're thinking that wouldn't happen. Maybe it would. It probably wouldn't happen. And if it did, you'd think, oh, what a missed opportunity that was. I missed the whole point. The sign is not the point. The sign is the pointer. The sign is the one that tells you how far you still have to go. Paul and Barnabas are saying to this crowd of people, we are just signs. We are not the destination. We are pointers. We are not the point. It was a missed opportunity for these people in Leicester to recognize where the power came from. You know, Paul heals a man by the power of God, and then this crowd begins treating Paul as God. Verse 11, it goes like this. Here's how it unfolded. It says, when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices. That's, that's the language of worship, you guys. They lifted up their voices, and they said, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, and then a pagan priest brings in some animals to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. And now, if, if you'll remember a few weeks ago, something similar happened to King Herod. The crowds were fawning over him and flattering him, and he milked it. He didn't, he didn't do like the Apostle Paul and Barnabas did by saying, no, we're just human beings like you. Instead, he milked it, and he went and got his shiniest uh, robe with glitter on it, and, you know, was just like, look at me, and he stood in the, in the sun so that the sun would, would beam off of his glitter. Look at how radiant and glorious and godlike I am. He milked the whole thing, and he gets struck dead in front of everybody. You know, the Herod experience points to what Paul's saying here in verse 15. All self-exalting things are what Paul calls vain things. Vain things are empty things. They are nothing. They are no thing vain things are. And one of the vainest things in the universe is people who want to exalt themselves. People who want themselves to be the point, themselves to be the destination, themselves to be the feast that everybody hungers for, as opposed to being pointers. And so Paul and Barnabas say, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. That's why we're here, to bring you good news. Not to establish a platform, not to be put on a a pedestal, not to be thought of as great, not to be made celebrity pastors by all of you, but to bring good news. And then to leave town so you'll forget us and orient your lives around Jesus for the rest of your lives. That's why we're here. So turn from these vain things, i.e. worshiping us, centering your lives and your focus on us and our celebrity and our platform. Do away with these vain things and turn to a living God. You know, Paul and Barnabas also had their heroes. All the apostles did during this time. John the Baptist would have been one of them, the forerunner to Christ, the the cousin of Jesus. There's this incredible opportunity that John the Baptist also has to become a celebrity, and he doesn't. 
The crowds are forming around him. They're they're flocking to his preaching like like a magnet. And and he says in front of everybody, after me is coming someone who's really the subject of everything I'm preaching right now. After me is coming someone whose sandals I am unworthy to untie, whose feet I am not even worthy to touch. Worship him. He must increase. I must become less. I mean, even Jesus did the same thing. The one one about whom John the Baptist is talking here, the one that Paul and Barnabas are preaching to the people in Lystra and city to city as they establish churches. Jesus himself, Philippians chapter 2, even though being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Even the one who is entitled to all of the worship and all the praise and all the platform and all the pedestals and all of the celebrity said, I come humbly. I come humbly. My power works in subversive ways, chiefly through weakness. You know, Ann Voskamp was troubled Uh, in the same way that Paul and Barnabas are becoming troubled, because she found that she was becoming, because of her wonderful writing, a Christian celebrity. And in response to that, she wrote to her followers, to anybody who would read these words, all celebrity has a responsibility to tear down pedestals, and all of us have a responsibility to not build any pedestals. Celebrity has platforms to grow brands. Christianity has altars to come and die. Don't follow me, she says. Don't follow anyone but the perfect one who had to take on a body. Don't follow anybody made of flesh because flesh will fail and fall. Follow Jesus alone who alone can save. So there's confusion about what greatness really is. But there's also clarity that's provided for us here about what greatness really is. A couple of things. We've already seen it in Paul and Barnabas and John the Baptist and Jesus and so many others here. Being shy about yourself and boastful about Jesus, that's that's like building block one of being a great person in biblical terms. Being shy about you and boastful about Christ. If you've ever read the book um, uh, Good to Great, you know, Jim Collins, leadership coach, like this is recognized out in out in out in business wor- in the business world that the great leaders are the level five leaders. And what's a level five leader? Collins describes the level five leader as humble, self-effacing, always deflecting credit away from themselves and, and giving credit away to others. And always taking the blame even for the mistakes that others make. Self-effacing. Making yourself nothing is part of, of what Jim Collins says. Makes you great. How much more the scriptures. Being shy about yourself. Being boastful about Christ. But the other thing that makes Paul and Barnabas great and makes anybody great who has this feature. Is that you have eyes and a heart to see as Jesus sees. 
In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus tells his disciples, I want you guys to pray. And what I want you to pray for is this, that the, the, that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers into his harvest field. Now, the harvest is, is actually people. And it says that as he's telling his disciples to pray, he's also looking over the crowd, and it says that Jesus sees this crowd. It's a crowd filled with people who have no interest in Jesus. It's a crowd filled with people who craft counterfeit gods like the people in Lystra. It's a crowd filled with people like the old Saul of Tarsus who were looking out for number one all the time and would trample over you if they had to in order to become number one or stay number one. The crowd was filled with those people. And what's Jesus' posture toward the crowd? It says that he saw them and he was moved. Moved with what? With compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is Jesus discerning that even if you're a narcissistic jerk bully, it traces back to the reality that you feel like a nobody, that you feel like nothing. On the inside, you're harassed and you're helpless and you need somebody to pronounce something over you to free you from that. I mean, that's why Paul was a bully. He was trying to or Saul of Tarsus was a bully. He was trying to establish himself through celebrity. And he realized later on it's a bunch of crap. But Paul and Barnabas enter Lystra, and in the crowd, same kinds of crowds that, that Jesus had compassion over, in this crowd in Lystra, there were elites, movers, shakers, gatekeepers, and kingmakers, and even, as we see here, godmakers. We'll call this one Zeus. We'll call this one Hermes. Let's make, let's make sacrifices to them. But who does Paul notice? In his opportunity for newfound celebrity, what is, who does Paul notice? The man on the ground. The man on the ground who is like Mephibosheth in the Old Testament, crippled in both feet, born with that disability, had never walked in in his entire life. This is a grown man on the ground accustomed to begging, accustomed to depending on everyone, and now by this time, no doubt, accustomed to becoming invisible. He'd become so much part of the furniture of, of, of first century society, sitting on the, out on the streets begging, that, that, that people didn't notice him anymore except when these two men of God come into town and it's almost as if this man is the only person in the world. It says, that, it says that Paul looked at him intently. He didn't just look at him. He didn't just notice him. He looked at him intently and noticed that the man had faith. And so he talks, and it says that the man listened intently, even as, as Paul noticed him intently. The principle here is very simple, and you see this playing out in the life of Christ. Just think about, for instance, maybe, maybe revisit Luke chapter 7 and the way that Jesus treats a prostitute uh, who's on the ground washing his feet with her hair and her tears. Now, revisit that, Luke chapter 7, but, but we'll just stay with this man on the ground, this disabled man on the ground for, for for the time being. 
The principle is this, that it's the people on the ground who are most eager to listen to what Jesus and the ambassadors of Jesus have to say about things like grace, mercy, pardon, forgiveness, healing, new life, guaranteed future. The people on the ground are most eager. Those who have lost at life. And, and, and what they find on the ground is this. Oh my goodness, lo and behold, Jesus wants to make people like me a VIP. You know, the half-brother of Jesus, James, wrote about this in his letter, where he says, if, if the super important celebrity person comes in to your church, don't reserve the best seat for that person. Don't give them special VIP treatment. Treat them like a human. Give them one place in their life where people don't treat them with a brown nose, don't brown nose them, don't, don't kiss up to them because they're rich and famous. Give them the dignity of treating them like a human being who's going to die and who has to contend with that fact because there's nobody that's treating them that way anywhere else. Everybody out there is treating them like a god, and maybe the reason why they come here is because they know this is a place where they won't be treated like that. Let them come to the Lord's table of need and of grace and provision. Because they know in their hearts, as we all know in their, our hearts, that's what we need. We need care. But then James goes on to say, when the person with ratty, stinky clothing hasn't showered in months, you know, has foot diseases, dirty everywhere, comes into your assembly, the poor person, give them the best seat. Give them the highest honor. Give them the privilege. And give them, too, an equal seat at the table of grace with everyone else. For many reasons, one of which is that the deepest faith is born from lower places. You know, Joe Novenson, a pastor from Chattanooga, says this about faith and how faith works. He says that the feel of faith is not strength, but dependent weakness. The feel of faith, if you feel weak, you're, you're actually more than likely in a place of strength as far as Jesus Christ is concerned, because the feel of faith is not the feel of strength, but dependent weakness. I mean, the Apostle Paul writes about this in, in 2 Corinthians, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And so when we come to church, here's, here's a question I think that's worth asking. When, we, when we're out in the community, when we're at work, when we're at the ball field, when we're in church, who do we notice first? Who do we see? Who do we come looking for? I love Rebecca McLaughlin's perspective on church, right? Somebody asked me recently, you, you know, you've been talking a lot about ministry of presence, lately, almost to the point of overemphasizing togetherness. What's that about? And part of it is, I think people are especially battered and injured from their loneliness from the last two years. And people need people, and people understand that. That's why solitary confinement is the, it's, it's the punishment that inmates dread the most. Even in paradise, God said, it's not good that this guy is alone. 
Okay, so there's a lot of theology underneath that, and there's a lot of real lived experience that being alone for too long, being isolated for too long, is not a good thing. But the other thing that, that Rebecca Laughlin says is that togetherness creates opportunity for care and ministry and for seeing one another. Here's her philosophy and her family's philosophy, and this is what they teach their kids. Let this be a challenge and encouragement to all, for all of us to process and figure out what do we do with this kind of thing. She says, our church philosophy is this. We're there every Sunday unless somebody's sick, and our friends can wait. If I've got a small group meeting later on that night or a dinner party later on that week with my friends, my friends are the last people that I will pursue when I'm at church. Not to snub them, but to prioritize those who are without friends or appear to be without friends. And so she says this, principle number one, our friends can wait. Principle number two, we know that every person is burdened with sin and with hurt on some level. And number three, and here's our family mantra, a person who is, an al who is alone in church, that's an emergency. And we're the first responders. That's part of what they see their ministry to be when people are gathered, especially gathered around Christ. See, because the nature of poverty, it's certainly, the, it's certainly an economic conversation, but it's not only an economic conversation. There's this, guy, there's this person, um, Deepa Narayan, who uh, published this book called Voices of the Poor, and it's just this series of interviews with, with poor people who are living on the streets, homeless, destitute, etc., and, and it's conversations recorded, transcripted. And here's the perspective of a homeless woman in this book, Voices of the Poor. She says, for a poor person, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation, shame. We are cripples. We are afraid of everything. We depend on everyone. No one needs us. We are like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. And what Narayan concludes from conversations like this is that the worst kind of poverty, and this is, this is agreed to by, by the actual people that he's interviewing, that the worst kind of poverty, as bad as economic poverty is, almost all of them would agree that the worst kind of poverty is relational poverty, the isolation, the aloneness that economic destitution brings. But pain doesn't discriminate, does it? Because it's not just the poor who have this inner monologue, right? You can have a seven-figure income and say the same thing. In my life, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation, shame. I feel crippled. I'm afraid of everything. I depend on everyone. No one needs me, really. I'm like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. You can, you can have a billion dollars and feel these same things. Because pain does not discriminate. Whether we're talking about the streets of Bordeaux or the links at Belmede Country Club, pain is everywhere. Everybody is fighting a hard, hidden battle with their own guilt and shame, with their own suffering and sorrow, with their own fear of death, 
with their own disappointment and grief over relationships that have gone south, everybody hurts. Thank you, Michael Seip and REM, Gen X Band. Speaking of bands, have you guys ever heard of the 27 Club? 62 members of the 27 Club, all of them celebrities, all of them died at age 27, many of them from suicide, drug overdose, or alcohol poisoning. Some of the familiar names among the musicians, since we're in Music City, would include Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Kurt Cobain, Amy Winehouse. Pain does not discriminate. And my wife and I were walking the California coast a couple of years ago, and this was an area in California where you could actually take you know, one of the you know, Brentwood, what they call McMansions, and, and actually fit it in one of the garages of these houses. They were so big. And, and we're walking by on the beach, lovely walk, and I, I turned to my wife in just kind of a snarky way, hmm, hard life, huh? And, and, and she looks back at me, serious as can be, you better believe it is. Don't you listen to what you preach, pal? Like, I'm in the middle of preaching Ecclesiastes, <laughs> one of the world's richest people in the world. And he's, you know, vanity is, is the word he uses. The emptiness of, of life under the sun apart from God. And, and I don't even see it, even though I'm preaching it in real time. It's so easy to miss. You know, what if every section in, in this church, this section, 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 had some self-appointed, self-appointed first responders like Rebecca McLaughlin and her family. Every single week, it's our mission to own this section and to bring people along with us in our connect group or who are in relationship. We're going to own this section as first responders. And what if, what if there were also people who felt immobilized? and said, you know what, I cannot find the rest and solace and care, and I can't find anybody who sees me out here, but maybe my last ditch is a church. Maybe I'll go to this one. See what happens. If you are unfinished, if you are messy, if you are incomplete, if you are damaged, the body and the blood of Christ for you. You do this in remembrance of Him, in honor of the fact that He did what He did in remembrance of you. He sees you. He sees you. And He loves getting on the ground. He loves helping immobilized people take the next step. Paul can't do that for you. Barnabas can't do that for you. Status can't do that for you. Money can't do that for you. Can't. Politics can't do that for you. The only thing that's going to get you off the ground is the saving kindness of Christ. 
And this is, this is a picture of his mercy, too, that he decides that he's going he's gonna to use us to, 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 to be channels and conduits of that kind of ministry to each other. The greatness behind the greatness. You know, I've heard this, I heard a person say not long ago, behind every great man is a great woman rolling her eyes. Okay? Bad comedic timing, I guess. I guess I'm in too serious of a mode for you to think that funny, but that was a joke, just for your information. Who was behind Paul, though? Wasn't married. No girlfriend. No, you know, named admirers. And look what happens at the end. This guy pours his life out. He deflects. He, he points away from himself. He's shy about himself. He's boastful about Jesus. And people travel from 20 miles away and 100 miles away on foot in order to bludgeon him to death. And they bludgeon him so mercil mercilessly that they think that he's dead. And what happens? The next day, he gets up and he goes into the next town and preaches the gospel. What's going to cause a person to get up and go after that? Maybe it's the memory of himself as Saul of Tarsus who once did the bludgeoning and who once was responsible for putting mobilized people into an immobilized place, not just on the ground but into the ground because they believed in Christ. Maybe it's that memory that he carried with him to the very end of his own life where he says, I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, chief of sinners, so why me? So that the mercy of God, so that the, the, the bigness and wideness of the mercy of God would be a demonstration to everybody. My life would be a demonstration of how far and wide that mercy reaches. Rich, poor, famous, infamous, everyone in between. It's amazing what Jesus Christ said to Saul of Tarsus as Saul of Tarsus was on the way to bludgeoning more Christians on the road to Damascus. It's right there in Acts chapter 9. He doesn't just say Saul. He says Saul, Saul. Every time in the Bible where a person's name is repeated twice, Absalom, Absalom, Martha, Martha, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It's a term of endearment, you guys. It's affection. It's compassion. It's seeing someone or some group harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He says, why do you persecute me? Do you know I identify with my people so tightly, so closely, that to go after them is to go after me? And I'm here, Saul of Tarsus, not to retaliate, but to redeem you, and then turn you into an ambassador. No longer will you put my people in the ground and on the ground. You, from now on, are going to lift my people off the ground. Hence, this beautiful account. So, lots of admiration in the news for Ukrainian President Zelensky. You know, this is a true leader. A true leader stays on post when things get hard, when things get violent, when things get risky, when you feel like you're behind. True leaders stay on post. And part of the effect of that, when that happens, is everybody else gains the courage. That's why. Everybody, so many people love the movie Braveheart, right? 
It's like William Wallace, this one man with all this courage, everybody else is like, I, I want in on that. I don't want to miss out on that. And that's what we see happening now. It's what we saw happening in the first century. But remember, Paul, Barnabas, Zelensky, all are road signs. Christ and Christ alone is the destination. And guess what, you guys? I get to now invite you to come to him. And don't stop 527 miles away. Come all the way. And, and don't just say hi to him. Take him inside of your body. His body inside of yours. His blood mixed with yours. As you take him in, that's how intimate this Savior is for those who are unfinished, messy, incomplete, damaged, and realize it. It's that last part that can be the hardest part. And so let's do that now. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for the body and the blood of Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you don't just get on the ground with your people. You were knocked to the ground. You were immobilized. You were put in the ground. And like this man in Acts, three days later you got up. And you didn't just walk. You ran. And you ran toward us as you still run toward us not to bludgeon us, but to heal us and to mend us and to make all things new. Let the receiving of this body and this blood, this bread and this cup, strengthen us to that end, not so that we would become great, mighty, famous people, Lord, but so that we would be able just to get off of the ground of whatever immobilization is there in our bodies and our souls. Remind us that we belong, body and soul, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, so we can get back up and just take the next faithful step, we pray. For it's in Jesus' name, amen.